Hello, everybody. It's good to see you all. That was um, some lively chatter um, before we begin this uh, class today, and I'm delighted. Uh, isn't it wonderful that brothers and sisters in Christ are not confined um, to just um, small areas so we can talk to each other and be together via Zoom uh, all the way across the Atlantic Ocean? So that's just absolutely wonderful. Um, we are turning again today to our study of Philippians, as Rachel pointed out as you were beginning. Um, we will not be meeting next week. Um, I need to be out of town, actually out of state for a few days, and, um, but I will be back. My mother is actually moving to South Carolina, and I'm going up there to help with the closing of the house. So uh, she's had enough of the rain, the sleet, and the snow too, um, Robert, and so she's, uh, she's decided this is it. So she's moving south, and um, I'm bracing myself and excited about this at the same time. So uh, looking forward to having her with us, but I will be up there for the closing of her house and then uh, to drive her down here to South Carolina. So we will miss next week, and I apologize for that, but we will get together the week following. But let's turn today to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at the end of chapter 2, verses 19 and following, and let's start with a word of prayer, asking the Lord's blessing on our time together. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, Grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Philippians chapter 3, verses 19 and following. We're going to see that Paul makes a shift here. He's been talking about great doctrinal matters, uh, heavy theology, but now he turns to some very practical matters, and he begins to talk about people who were very close to him personally and who have been engaged in ministry with him for some time. And this is a very important part of the letter, I think, in terms of just helping us as we navigate through the Christian life, as we make this pilgrimage as the followers of Christ. So Paul writes, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has long been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. I think that there are times in the Christian life when we almost feel as this calling that has been laid upon us is overwhelming. Not only overwhelming in the sense that it just is weighty upon us, but unattainable, that it's very difficult to live up to the high calling to which we have been called. Indeed, that's what Paul is writing at the beginning of this letter. He says to the Philippians, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, when you consider the gospel of Christ, and you consider how important that is, and the kind of life that would be expected of one who is to be a reflection of Jesus Christ, there are times when that can seem almost overwhelming to us. I mean, even if you listen to what Paul says here, and this is a letter that, as I said, is intended to be an encouragement, but when you listen to some of the things that Paul says, and you put them all together, Again, the message that he is imparting to the Philippians and therefore to us can at times seem almost crushing. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, he says. 
In Philippians chapter 2, he says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who though he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but gave it up and took the form of a servant. Going on from there, Paul says that we are to do all things without grumbling or complaining, that we are to be blameless, innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. We are to shine like lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, even though he and we are being poured out like drink offerings. That's what we're supposed to be. That's the calling that has been laid upon us as the followers of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I listen to that. And while that is very wonderful, and while that is a high calling indeed, I have to admit that there are times in my life when I feel as though I fall woefully short of it. And almost feel as though that high calling is an impossible one. Especially if you have an honest appraisal of your own faults and character flaws. I mean, what does Paul say in Romans chapter 3? He says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, no, not one. So if we're all sinners, we've all fallen short of the goodness of God, the greatness of God, the glory of God. If none of us is worthy of eternal life, how in the world are we going to attain to this high calling and be like Christ? And Paul doesn't just say that we're all sinners. You know, I think many people today are willing to acknowledge the fact that we're all sinners, but I wonder if we realize just how serious a matter that is. I turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 7 for just a moment. Because here Paul is giving us a little autobiographical information. I think when most of us think of the Apostle Paul, we think of this man who was larger than life, this courageous individual who suffered a great deal for the cause of Christ, but never wavered. And there's no doubt about the fact that Paul was a, a great champion for the gospel. But when Paul looked at his own life, not the way other people looked at him, but as he looked at his own life, honestly, he came to the realization that there was nothing good in him. Look at what he says, Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 18. He said, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. How many of you can relate to that? How many of you find that to be true in your own life, that when you really look at yourself, you know, not the way other people look at you. Other people may look at you and think to yourself, well, you're quite respectable, but they don't know what goes on in your mind. They don't know what's the, what are the desires and the thoughts of your heart. Paul is very honest there. He said, I know that nothing good dwells in me. So now it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin that dwells within me. I have a desire to do what is right, but I find that sin is close at hand. Well, if that's true, how in the world can any of us live the life worthy of the calling to which we have been called? How can any of us adopt the attitude of Christ Jesus? How can any of us really shine like the stars in this darkened and depraved generation? As I said, it can at times seem almost overwhelming, as though it's a, a high calling but an impossible one to attain. And sometimes you almost want to just throw in the towel and give up. Well, that's why what Paul does for us here in Philippians chapter 2, in the latter part of this chapter, is so important. Because what Paul does is he provides us with two examples of real people, real flesh and blood people who were not perfect people, who were in many respects just like us, who nevertheless lived out this high calling. And I want to look at them briefly, both of them, 
today? Who were these individuals? Because they're an example for us to follow. This is not theoretical. Paul wants us to understand that the calling to which we have been called is something that other people have lived out, and they can be an example for us. That great cloud of witnesses. And the first person that he mentions, who is an example of someone who is living out this high calling, is this man, Timothy. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not of those of Christ Jesus. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Who is this young man, Timothy, that Paul is saying has lived out this high calling to which he has been called? Well, we know a great deal about Timothy from other places in the New Testament. First of all, the book of Acts tells us that Timothy came from the town of Lystra. Now, Lystra is in modern-day Turkey. It is a place that Paul visited on his first missionary journey. So if you have your Bibles, just uh, open, put your finger there in Philippians, and turn back, if you will, to Acts chapter 14 where you can be reminded of Paul's visit to Lystra. Just to fill you in, Paul started off on his first missionary journey, along with a man by the name of Barnabas. They left the church in Antioch. It was Antioch in what is Syria. They traveled down the coast, and they took a boat from a town called Seleucia over to the Isle of Cyprus. Some of you perhaps have visited Cyprus. And Paul preached around Cyprus along with Barnabas and tried to evangelize the community. After that, they traveled back up to the continent to Pisidian Antioch. This is the other Antioch. There were two Antiochs in the old world. The first one was in Syria where Paul and Barnabas had departed from, and the other was Pisidian Antioch. So they went to Pisidian Antioch. They preached the gospel there. We're told that the gospel was received initially with such enthusiasm, in fact, that the members of the congregation, they'd gone into the synagogue, of course, the members of the congregation begged them to come back the next week and share more of this gospel with them. But something happened over the course of that week, between that first Sabbath and the second Sabbath. We're told that a division erupted in the community between those who had accepted the message and those who had rejected it. And when Paul and Barnabas arrived at the synagogue on that second Sabbath, we're told that there were those who were inciting abuse against them. And the result is that they were thrown out of Antioch. Now, they left Antioch, and they went on from there to the town of Iconium. And there in Iconium, the same thing happened. The gospel was preached. There was a division in the community between those who accepted the message and those who rejected it, and they were thrown out of Iconium. They traveled on from there to Lystra, and that's where we're going to intersect with Timothy. So if you have your Bibles open to Acts chapter 14, let's just go ahead and read through these verses. We're going to start at chapter 14, verse 5. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them, that is, the apostles, Paul and Barnabas, and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, the cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now, one of the things we learn in Acts chapter 16 is that Timothy was a young man living in Lystra at this time. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw that Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in a Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. 
Now, there's a little bit of background information here that is helpful. There was a legend in Lystra at this time that at one point the gods had come down and the gods had given the people an opportunity to repent of their wickedness. And the people had rejected the gods. In fact, there was only one small couple that had taken in the gods and cared for them. And in anger, we're told that the gods had sent a great flood that had destroyed the city of Lystra. But this older couple that had taken in the gods, their little hovel was turned into a shining palace. Now, this is one of those legends from the ancient world, one of the legends from um, the beliefs in the ancient gods, the, the Greek and Roman deities, and so forth. At any rate, here come Paul and Barnabas into this Greco-Roman culture. They come preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, and Paul heals this man in the name of Christ who's been crippled. Now, the word gets out that two men have come, one is very eloquent. They have the ability to heal people. There is this legend in the community that what? That at one point, Zeus and Hermes had come down. They had been rejected. Perhaps this is the second opportunity. Perhaps Paul and Barnabas are, in fact, Zeus and Hermes returned. We don't want to make the same mistake twice. And so that's the background, and that explains why it was that all of the people come out, this great entourage, they come out with bulls and animals ready to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas, who they assume are gods in human flesh. But what do Paul and Barnabas do? Do they accept this homage? Of course not. Verse 14, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments, rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness, even with these words, however, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But look at verse 19. You've heard me say before, no good deed goes unpunished. Well, here we go. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. What a radical change in attitude. On the one hand, when they arrive in the city, the people are ready to acclaim them as gods, to sacrifice to them. Moments later, the attitude is changed and they are ready to kill them. It sounds remarkably similar to Jesus, doesn't it? Who rode in triumph into the city of Jerusalem, acclaimed as the king, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. But within a short span of a week, those shouts of Hosanna had become shouts of crucify him, crucify him. Well, we have a similar situation here. And what we're told is that, but when the disciples gathered Paul up, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. So that was Paul's encounter in Lystra. And you might think to yourself, well, there wasn't very much success in a place like that. But what we discover is that in spite of the persecution that they endured, there were in fact a few people who embraced the gospel, who believed the good news. And among them were two women. Two women. And those two women were the mother and grandmother of this young man, Timothy. Now, sometime later, if you turn a few pages in your Bible to the 16th chapter of Acts, you'll read that Paul set off on a second missionary journey. And one of the places that he visited on his second missionary journey was this city of Lystra. He went back to Lystra in spite of the persecution that he had faced there. Chapter 16, verse 1, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, 
a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for I all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. And so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So who is Timothy? Timothy is this young man who is from Lystra, whose mother and grandmother were believers, who were all converted when Paul first went to Lystra on that very first missionary journey where he faced intense persecution, even to the point of shedding blood, where he was stoned and dragged outside the city and left for dead. So this is a Romans 8.28 moment where God works all things together for good. In spite of the persecution, a young man is saved, along with his grandmother and his mother. So Timothy is the man from Lystra. He comes, as we see, from mixed parentage. He has a mother who's a believer. His father is a pagan. Here's something else about him. He's young. Paul writes two letters to Timothy that we know of. And in the first letter, Paul speaks of his youth. He says, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. I've always felt a, a certain kinship for Timothy, more in the past than I do today. But when I first entered the ministry, I was a very young man, comparatively speaking. I graduated from university when I was just in my early 20s. And I graduated from the university in the spring, and I matriculated in seminary or at seminary in the fall. And when I graduated from seminary three years later, I was ordained at the age of 24. So I was only 24 years old, and I was ordained a deacon. 25 as a priest. At the time, and I was informed of this by the bishop's office, at the time, I was the youngest priest, not only in the Diocese of South Carolina, I was the youngest priest in the Episcopal Church, 25 years old. And I don't mind telling you how intimidated I felt by all of these other clergy who were older and more seasoned than I was. In fact, I remember my first class at seminary. Uh, I sat in the back of the room. I came in. It was a large class. It was a, it was a class on Old Testament. And I walked in, I had about 50 or 60 people in the class. We were one of the largest classes in the seminary's recent history. I'm sitting in the back of the classroom, and there are all these people, all of whom are older than I am. And the professor says, well, before we start, since we're going to be together for the next three years, I'd like you to go around the room and each person tell me who you are and what you did in your former life. And I'm sitting in the back of the class thinking, former life? I didn't have a former life. And they're going around, and they're all telling him what they had done. And it was an impressive group. I had a number of professors, former professors who were in the class, professors of chemistry or professors of history or whatever it might be. I had a number who were doctors. I had some who were military officers. I had one who was a retired rear admiral. And there was a whole handful of lawyers who, I guess, were doing penance. They'd given up law for grace. But all of these people with these impressive careers behind them, and there am I, sitting in the very back, and I thought to myself, why did I sit back here? And I'm thinking to myself, I know I'm saved by grace, but I have to graduate by works. And I was so intimidated. I'm sure Timothy felt the same way. He was young. In his second letter to Timothy, the last letter that Paul wrote, or at least the last letter that we have from his hand, he told Timothy to flee youthful passions. I don't think I need to elaborate on what those might be, but we all know what youthful passions are like. And it's not just fleshly passions. Sometimes it's just the desire to succeed. Sometimes it's when you're young, you think you have all the answers. Young men's disease is what I sometimes call it. But the point is that Timothy was a young man, comparatively speaking. 
Most scholars regard that he was probably in his 20s or in his early 30s. How much do 20-year-olds really know? Oh, they think they know it all, but how much do they really know? So here's a young man who is coming from a family that are not Christians for a very long time. They've just been converted. He's got a mixed parentage. He's got a mother who's a believer, but a father who's probably somewhat hostile to this thing called Christianity. He's young. He's inexperienced. He's also prone to illness. Keep your finger there in Acts for a moment and turn, or excuse me, Philippians, and turn, if you will, to 1 Timothy, one of the letters that Paul wrote to this young man. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul gives Timothy a little bit of practical advice. And here's what he says. He says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and for your frequent ailments. What does that tell us? It tells us that Timothy was not of a robust constitution. Paul's not referring to just a singular event. He's referring to what he describes as frequent ailments. Now, when I think of the Apostle Paul, I think of somebody who was strong. I think of somebody with a robust constitution. He endured a great deal for the sake of Christ, and somehow he always managed to bounce back. He must have had the constitution of an ox. But Timothy was this young man, inexperienced man, a sickly young man. In addition to that, he was also a timid young man. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians in his first letter to that church, he talked about Timothy. And he says, when Timothy comes, put him at his ease. In other words, he must have known that Timothy was a, a high-strung young man, a nervous Nellie, an anxious individual. And he's saying, put Timothy at his ease. Again, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, Paul says this, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, and do not be ashamed of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel, for it is the power of God. Now, why do you think Paul had to say to Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear? There's only one reason. It's because he knew Timothy was fearful. Why do you think he had to say to Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or about me, his prisoner? It's because he knew that was a temptation for Timothy. Timothy was timid. He was shy. We would probably today call him an introvert. And yet what's amazing is that Timothy was Paul's chosen successor. Can you imagine anybody that could have been any more different from the Apostle Paul than this young man? Paul came from this, this distinguished Jewish family, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Timothy was a young man who came from mixed parentage. Paul had many years of experience in the gospel ministry, even before he took Timothy along. Timothy was young and inexperienced. Paul was robust, strong, he had physical ailments, but they never seemed to slow him down. Timothy was prone to illness, sickly, timid. The point is that Timothy was a most unlikely person to step into Paul's sandals and make a difference in the world. That's one of the reasons I love Timothy, is because most of us, even if we can't relate to Paul, we can relate to Timothy. We recognize that that's more like us than anything else. And yet Paul speaks of Timothy as a fellow soldier and partner in the gospel. It's important for us to remember the situation that Paul was in when he wrote these words. We've already said that he was imprisoned in Rome. 
Now, remember, there was a church in existence in Rome at this time. Paul had already written a, written a letter to the church in Rome. He'd written it just a few years before. His longest and weightiest letter was written to this church in Rome. And you can't help but ask yourself, well, then why was Paul forgotten? Because that's one of the reasons he writes this letter to the Philippians, to thank them for remembering him in his imprisonment because everybody else had forgotten him. Well, where were the other believers in Rome, these people to whom Paul had written that great letter? Well, they're there, but their attitude is not one of concern. Look at what he says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 21. He says, I have no one like Timothy who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, oh, yes, there are people who profess a belief in Jesus Christ. Yes, there is a church here in Rome, but the people who are members of that congregation are only concerned for their own interests. They are not concerned for the interests of others. They are not concerned for me. But Timothy, Timothy is different. He's deeply concerned for me. Indeed, Paul says, there are those who preach Christ, but they do it what? Out of rivalry. We looked at that when we looked at the first chapter. Some preach it out of rivalry. Now, Paul rejoiced that Christ was preached, whether it was out of envy or not. But the point is that the Christians in Rome were Christians more in name than they were in practice. The church in Rome was a worldly church. But what about Timothy? Timothy, Paul says, stood in contrast to those other Christians in Rome. There are a number of things that Paul says about Timothy here in this chapter that's worthy of note. First of all, he refers to Timothy as selfless. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Everyone else seeks their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But that's not Timothy. Timothy is selfless. We need to ask ourselves, what is the point of the Christian life? Is the point of the Christian life simply to come into a relationship with Christ so that you can escape the late great planet Earth when God brings judgment? Or is the point of the Christian life to give ourselves up for the sake of others, following the example of Jesus, who on the night before he was betrayed got down on his hands and knees and washed the feet of the disciples, setting them an example that they should follow? A new commandment I give you, he said, that you love one another. Bishop Leslie Newbegin was one of the great missionaries of the 20th century. He was an Englishman, graduated from Oxford University, was ordained, and sent off to India and lived in India for over 30 years preaching the gospel. He returned to Britain in the 1980s, and he was shocked by what he saw. What he saw was a country that had become so secularized. And one of the things that he noticed, even among the evangelicals in the Church of England, he said was that everyone was concerned with his own interests. This is what Newbegin said. So much of the singing, so much of the preaching talks about me, talks about I, talks about my relationship with Christ. It's not really what this can mean for others, but what it means for me. He was shocked by what he called the egocentrism of Christianity in Britain. Now, let me just say to the Sainsburys, this is not something that afflicts Britain alone. This is a problem for us as well. But Newbegin's analysis of the situation was absolutely true. So much of Christianity is focused on the individual. But that's not the Christianity of the New Testament. And it was not the attitude of Timothy, who Paul says was concerned not for his own interests, but genuinely concerned for the welfare of others. So that's the first thing that Paul says about Timothy, his selflessness. Here's the second thing he says about Timothy, that Timothy was a man of great worth. Verse 22, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. 
It's been estimated that by the time that Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians, Timothy had been his companion for 15 years. Now, I want you to think about what Paul had endured during the course of those 15 years between his second missionary journey and the time of his imprisonment. Timothy joined him on that second missionary journey at the very beginning of it, and he would go on with Paul to all of these other places. Just think about all that Paul had endured, and remember that Timothy was right there by his side. Now, what did Paul endure? Well, he gives us a catalog of his afflictions in 2 Corinthians. So if you turn back just a few pages to the left in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 28, you'll get a picture of some of the things that Paul had faced as a follower and servant of Christ. Here's what he says, beginning chapter 11, verse 24. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, that was in Lystra, Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brethren. I've been in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." Those are the things that Paul had endured for the sake of the gospel. My goodness, it's a veritable catalog of miseries, hardships, persecution. But we can't forget that during the course of all of these things, there was this young man who endured all those hardships with him, young Timothy. And as Paul is there languishing in prison in Rome, who is there by his side? Timothy this constant companion who never deserted. In other words, in spite of his weakness, in spite of his timidity, in spite of the fact that he was an introvert, Timothy was nevertheless a gallant soldier for the cross. That's what Paul means when he says, you know his worth, you know his medal. You know his medal. So Timothy is a selfless man. He's a man who has proven himself in combat, as it were, combating the world, the flesh, and the devil. And here's the third thing Paul mentions about him, his devotion. His devotion. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel as a son with his father. You know, it's not easy if you're a young man and you're ambitious and you'd like to get to the top of the corporate ladder. You'd like to be successful in the eyes of the world. It's not easy to be number two. There's an old poem that says, it takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. Timothy had been second fiddle to Paul for all those years and never once tried to usurp Paul, never once tried to second-guess Paul, never once complained about the fact that he was not number one. This reminds me of a story about Abraham Lincoln and the humility of Lincoln, really, during the war between the states, it was 1862, Lincoln had a general by the name of George B. McClellan. McClellan was a very arrogant individual who was absolutely convinced that he was brighter and more capable of leading the country than Lincoln could ever be. And the story goes that on one occasion, Lincoln went to visit McClellan. Lincoln, of course, is the commander-in-chief. He's the president. He went to visit McClellan. The army was in camp just outside of Washington. It was a vast army, over 100,000 strong. And McClellan kept a house in the city. So he'd be out with the troops during the day, but then the gentleman, he would come back into the town and he would uh, sleep in his own bed. And the story goes that Lincoln and the Secretary of State, William Seward, went to visit McClellan at his house one day to talk about the army, talk about the state of the war and so forth. And when they arrived, 
They were ushered into the parlor and the servant explained that the general was not back yet. He was still inspecting the troops, but he would be back momentarily if they would just wait for a time. So the president of the United States, the secretary of state sit down in the parlor and they wait. They wait for about an hour and finally they hear the front door open. They can hear McClellan's voice in the hallway and then they can hear the sound of his boots and spurs going up the steps. They assume that he's going up to get out of his muddy uniform and come down and look more presentable to make his report to the commander in chief. So they wait. They wait for another hour. Finally, they ring for the servant. They said, where is General McClellan? And the servant said, General McClellan begs to report that he has decided to go to bed. At which point, Lincoln, without a word, stands up, reaches for his hat and starts for the door. And William Henry Seward grabs him by the arm and he says, Mr. President, where are you going? And Lincoln said, well, he said he's gone to bed. He said, gone to bed, you are the commander in chief. He said, you need to fire him on the spot. And the story goes at that point, Lincoln turned to him with the saddest look in his eyes. And he said, Seward, I tell you the truth. I'd hold that man's horse if that's what it would take to bring us victory. That's humility, my friends. And it is a rare thing to put yourself second or last, to empty yourself as Christ emptied himself. That's what Timothy did. That's how he did it. In the small things, not in the grand things, not in the things that are visible to everyone else, but in the small things, in the way that he served Paul, who was called to be this great apostle. The fact remains, Paul could not have done what he did if Timothy did not do what he did. So Paul says, this is a man of selflessness. This is a man of great worth who has proven himself in the cause of the gospel. And this is a young man of great devotion. Timothy serves as an example for us. That's how we are to live our lives. Yes, it is a high calling to which we have been called. Yes, at times it seems overwhelming. But the faithfulness is displayed not in the grand things, but in the small things and the countless little acts that may go unnoticed by everyone else around us, but never go unnoticed by God. Paul, however, not only mentions Timothy, he mentions another young man who is also worthy of emulation, and that's this man Epaphroditus. Now, we know a great deal more about Timothy than we do know about Epaphroditus. The only thing we really know about this young man is what Paul tells us here in the latter part of chapter 2. But even here in these few verses, we learn a great deal about this man's character. We're all familiar with St. Timothy. There are churches named for St. Timothy. I don't think there's a single church named for St. Epaphroditus. But he was a saint. He was a remarkable man. And Paul says he was worthy of honor. What do we know about Epaphroditus? Well, look again at verses 25 and following. He said, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. Epaphroditus was the young man sent by the Philippian church to find Paul in Rome. We said that one of the reasons that Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians was to thank them for remembering him. And apparently they had sent a gift to him, probably some sort of monetary gift to relieve his suffering. All the other churches apparently had forgotten Paul, even that church in Rome where he was imprisoned. But the Philippians, we said, had not forgotten and it was some distance from Philippi to Rome. And travel in the first century, well, that was arduous. It was dangerous. And there was one young man who was entrusted with the gift, one young man that was felt to be worthy of carrying this gift and ensuring that it would arrive safe and sound to Paul. And it was this man, Epaphroditus. He was their messenger sent to Paul. Now, Paul describes him as a soldier. 
probably because, as I said, traveling in that day was dangerous. This was not going to be an easy trip. This was not like hopping on a plane and being there in a few hours. This was not like getting into an air-conditioned automobile. Travel in that day was extremely dangerous. You saw all of the things that Paul endured in danger from bandits, shipwrecked three times. Epaphroditus would have had to endure all of that in order to get to Paul. And then he had to find Paul. And we're told that in the course of his travels, he became sick. We don't know what the illness was exactly, but it was not uncommon. You have to remember that the average lifespan in the first century was about 35 years of age. So if you were 30 years old, you were getting up there. You were getting long in the tooth. Some of us are veritable miracles. But people became sick. They died young. Women often died in childbirth. People became sick. Drinking water was not chlorinated. There was no fluoride. There was nothing like that. It was dangerous, and people became sick. And apparently this man became sick, and not just sick, but Paul says even to the point of death. Paul says, I was distressed that he was going to die. Now, he did recover. But, of course, word had made its way back to Philippi. It must have been a long recovery, but word had made it back to Philippi that Epaphroditus was at the point of death. And so now he was anxious. Perhaps his parents were back there, or brothers and sisters, friends were wondering, would he survive? They must have been anxious, and he was anxious because they were anxious. He is longing for you all, Paul says in verse 26, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill even to the point of death. So here was a young man who had braved the elements and the circumstances in order to come and bring relief to the Apostle Paul. Here was a man who was willing to risk his very health in order to do so. Here was a man who longed to be with friends and family, but for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the Apostle, was willing to set aside his own desires and strike out on this dangerous journey. Here was a man who put his life on the line for the sake of the gospel. And what does Paul say of him? That he is to be received with all joy. Paul says, honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. That's a good word for us to honor such men and such women who are willing to give up so much for the sake of Christ. We honor others, don't we? We honor great soldiers who have done great things for their country. They get statues and monuments and memorials. Do we honor those who suffer for the sake of Christ, who risk their lives and their health, who are not content with rusting out, who will do everything even if it means burning out. Do we honor such people? I can't help but think about the returns of some of America's soldiers. I think, for example, of those who came back at the end of World War II and the celebration and the ticker tape parades. Everyone was so glad to have the men back again. We rejoiced and we celebrated their accomplishments and the way that they were willing to risk everything for the sake of the world's freedom, to defend us from fascism. But then I think about those men who came back from Vietnam, who likewise served, and the return that they received. It was anything but the ticker tape parade. Oftentimes, they weren't even given jobs. Nothing that they did was acknowledged. In fact, in many respects, they were disdained. But they too had served, and many of them had given that last full measure of devotion. Well, there are many men and women who are out there on the mission field, and by the way, we're living in this secular culture, so really the whole world is the mission field. 
But there are many who have given up a great deal in order to follow Christ, who don't make anything but a pittance, who sometimes suffer greatly physically, or oftentimes alone and homesick and far from those they love. But they have given to everything for the sake of Jesus Christ. And Paul's words to us is that we should honor such people. Receive them in the Lord with all joy. And above all else, we should follow their example. Because they are living a life worthy of the calling to which they have been called. May God grant that we may be more like Timothy and more like Epaphroditus, Paul's fellow partners and soldiers in the cause of Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for these practical examples. It is true, there are times when we look at the Christian life and we think there's no way that we can do it. Nobody could do this. But there were some. They're not remembered oftentimes among the great. Epaphroditus is completely forgotten. We know a little more about Timothy, but we hardly know anything about this other man. And yet Paul says he was a soldier for the gospel. And he is now there in heaven where he wears that royal diadem, that, that crown of victory, because he suffered. And in suffering, proved himself to be a faithful servant of Jesus. Grant that we may do the same. Grant that we may fear nothing but the loss of thee. Grant that we may be fellow soldiers and partners in the gospel. For Jesus' sake. Amen. God bless you. We will not be together next week, as you know, but um, the following week we will gather again and uh, continue on with this study of Philippians. Um, we actually may finish out the book. Paul's going to go into some very practical things at the end, which he sometimes does at the ends of his letters, and we'll try to pull all of this together uh, in that last class. So please come and join us once again, and uh, I look forward to seeing you. And uh, by God's grace, I look forward to seeing your faces on Sunday.